Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self-Enlightened One. Um, I thought I would uh, just centre on uh, happiness. I was watching a, uh, a talk, I'll probably put it on one of my e-reminders, uh, about mindfulness <clears throat> and uh, the amount of uh, literature on mindfulness over the past three to five years has sort of zoomed. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's uh, I believe, well it says that editors tell writers, you know, in, in self-help psychology, areas to make sure they put mindfulness in the title <laughs> and the other thing is happiness so uh, we've now got gross national happiness and uh, you'll see you'll see books appearing just on on happiness there was a whole issue of resurgence on happiness uh, well they they termed it well-being which is which is a term I prefer so uh, it just I just thought to uh, center on uh, you know what the Buddha means by happiness and uh, the handout you've got is for your reflection tomorrow not particularly uh, now and <clears throat> this word happiness by the way it comes from uh, an old English word hap which means lucky luck <laughs> so you get things like to happen that's a, that was later developed and then happenstance which normally has a good meaning to it happenstance so that happiness is um, is uh, it comes from a sort of idea of, of luck in a way, which is strange, and we don't use it like that now. But uh, if we try to define what we mean by happiness and just clarify that, then uh, um, it'll help us really in our practice. So the first thing is: is happiness a sensual pleasure per se? You know, just by itself, would that bring? happiness as such. See? So I don't think we normally associate um, sense pleasure with as happiness. We associate what happens when we have sense pleasure, the mental states that arise, uh, but we tend to see it as something separate from the word happiness, I think anyway. And if you think about happiness as, a, as, a, as an emotion, see? happiness so when are you when are you happy when are you feeling happy uh, about a couple of minutes a day is it <laughs> so if somebody said to you are you happy it's a difficult one isn't it but it's very rare that that you would have such a an intensity of emotion that was happiness and you might it might shade into excitement okay. or perhaps happiness refers to a mood sort of an underlying mood uh, but then moods also uh, don't are not stable. They don't they don't sort of hang around all that long. So uh, this word happiness has uh, has a few meanings. And if somebody says happy, um, do they mean your general disposition to life? Are you happy? See, so people, you know, I often get the question. You see, so people come and they look around this place and look at me and they say, "Are you happy?" <laughs> and I I sometimes say, "Well, not right now." Because <laughs> it depends what you mean by happiness, you know. Um, so I tend to prefer the word well-being, uh, but even that has limitations. Um, but if we go through, um, uh, you know, what we mean by uh, well-being. So our blessings, when we do the the metta sutta, our blessings are: may you be safe. That's pretty basic, isn't it? You want to be safe from physical danger, safe from financial collapse. There's a sort of uh, connection with the world we're living in, the, the society we're living in, the state of the world, which um, creates a sense of safety. I would have thought that's basic to happiness, basic to a sense of well-being. So, for instance, when if people get very much involved in, in this... Um, climate change business 
And there's an underlying anxiety, frustration, despair about the situation, which would uh, feed through to all the rest of their lives, wouldn't it? And it's there within us all, you know, that sense of danger. And then there's health, of course. So, you know, the state of your body uh, can undermine your general state of well-being. It might be just very something simple, you know, just having a bad flu. You know, would you ask somebody who's got a really bad flu to feel happy? No. <laughs> Are you happy? Do you have, have you got well-being? And then there's chronic illness, of course. You've got a chronic illness. That's not. That can be undermining to a sense of well-being. And if if you're told you've got so many, you know, so long to live. See these people that we mentioned evening. One, one person there, six months, you see, would you still have a sense of well-being? Would you still be happy about that? So, <clears throat> the sense of happiness, mm, well-being. And then, and then, may you be safe, may you be well, may you be, you be, may you be happy. So that also comes into our blessings, may you be happy. That's also here, referring to a mental state. And the last one is, ease of living so I've translated that as being content with the way things are content with the way things are and uh, live in harmony so even if uh, things aren't going so bad we're at least working with it and we're seeing potential we're seeing an end to the problem which can lift the heart if we resign ourselves in that bad sense to something then uh, you tend to begin to despair not feel so good well-being goes out the window but uh, to try to just go on on a different tack um, what the Buddha constantly goes on about is this attachment tanha so he has a special word for it it refers to that relationship we have to things um, for the purpose of seeking happiness and that's basically it so you could say from and inter from the wisdom point of view, there's a misconception, a misunderstanding, which, uh, which is about who we are. So that misunderstanding basically is, I am a human being. I am a human being. And finding ourselves with this definition, I am this person, I am this human being. We then, from the heart's point of view, we're trying to seek happiness. So we seek happiness as a human being in the human world. And that leads us to this connection with pleasure. Connection with not just, you know, simple pleasures, eating, sex, drugs and rock and roll, that sort of stuff. But art, nature, relationships, anything to do that brings that sort of combination of pleasure and happiness. Uh, that, we can, that we can generate, that we can uh, experience through this psychophysical organism. So immediately we're in a relationship with the world on this misunderstanding that the world can somehow, if we engineer it correctly, if we can move around it properly, it can, we can somehow find happiness. Hmm. So from that you have these um, basic relationships. The first one is, whatever is making you happy, you want to acquire. You want to acquire more of, you want to sustain it. And when that moves into a relationship, whatever it is, even with objects, you're moving into an ethical, <coughs> an ethical situation, you see. So ethics, in its broadest sense, is about relationship. Right? So if I acquire something, then I have a relationship to it. Right? So if it's an object, it's a dependency. Either our computer is just messing up. So there's fear, despair, <laughs> anger, the whole lot, see? It all comes up when the computer doesn't work. So <laughs> this, this, I have, we have this relationship, both myself and Martin, you see, with this machine. Now, um, if I have it with a machine, that doesn't particularly affect the machine as such. I mean, it's just, the machine doesn't know I have this relationship with it. But with a person it's slightly different because with a person 
if I have an attachment it means I'm demanding of that person that they make me happy and that tends to take away their humanity their individual personhood because you're only looking at them from a particular point of, try of getting them to make you happy so they become an object see? I mean all our relationships are a mixture of that you know, they're a mixture of true love a true connection with the person but also a certain often unspoken a covert demand yeah? this comes out in silly things like you, you buy them a great big lump of special cheese for Christmas they don't send you anything that's very upsetting that you're expecting your usual, your usual piece of goat's cheese. just didn't arrive. So you've got this relationship with people, you see. Part of it is from this misconception about people making you happy. Yeah, the computer makes me happy. Things make me happy. People make me happy. And then there's all the other area of art and nature. See? So you might have looked on, uh, on the weather forecast and it says it is going to be good tomorrow and so you prepare to go out and enjoy nature and it turns out to be cloudy and horrible that's, all, that's terrible isn't it that's profoundly upsetting and despair <laughs> and, and of course we live in a country where you can't you can't judge what's going to happen which is really good for spiritual practice I mean, yeah. I mean Sri Lanka it just gets hot and you can expect it to remain like that so um, this relationship of acquisitiveness, right? when we are actually enjoying it, see remember, when we're actually enjoying something, that is Nibbana, by which I mean perfect happiness. I mean when you are completely lost, for instance, in a DVD or in a bit of food, when you lose that sense of self-awareness, when you become in that total way what it is you're experiencing, Remember, every time self-awareness comes up, there's always a break. That's another, that's another consciousness. A consciousness is watching you, watching the DVD. It's watching, you're watching yourself eating. Even if it's a break, you see, there's still not that absorption. Okay? While we are absorbed, yeah, in the bowl of sweet, see, while we are absorbed in it, as far as we're concerned in that moment, it becomes timeless, doesn't it? There's no self there. So, <clears throat> in the scriptures, the Buddha goes through these various levels of Nibbāna, you see. But he says it's not very good, because it doesn't, it doesn't last. <laughs> you know, the, like the ball sweet comes to an end. Then despair arises. Unless you can find another one. See? And that's what, that's what happens, isn't it? You, you get this dependency, right? This addiction. This constant having to re-perform in order to get the same bliss. And of course, there's an inbuilt uh, obsolescence to pleasure, isn't there? Because the same one won't work. So you've got you've to try a different flavour. Yeah. So you've got this constant chasing. I think in, in, in drug circles they call it chasing the dragon. So you're constantly chasing this dragon, trying to get, trying to get the same high that you had before. So there's your addiction, you see. Then, of course, if you don't get it, if you can't get your ball sweets, then you tend to feel frustrated, you know, and you, you write your MP, things like that. You're very, you get very angry. Um, <coughs> if, if, you've, if you've just laid out on a whole bag of special boiled sweets, gobstoppers. If you've got a whole bag of gobstoppers and you leave them on the train or the bus, boy, it's very upsetting, isn't it? I mean, there's sorrow there, there's deep grief, you know. <laughs> so when you lose something which has given you a lot of pleasure, then there's grief. And then, of course, while you're carrying your bag of gobstoppers, you're always aware that they might go. So there's an underlying anxiety of loss. I was in India once, and this uh, I bought uh, a bag of peanuts. And I was walking away 
really enjoying these uh, roasted peanuts. Yeah. Suddenly there was a slap on the top of my head. Real shock. And it went just like that, it just disappeared. Cheeky monkey. Came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I was <laughs> it just landed on me and stole me flip. And then of course there's um, boredom. Boredom. So I like to point out that in an obvious sense, greed is the engine of the consumer society. I mean, everybody wants more, more, more. In fact, more is no longer an adjective, is it? It's a noun. You say to somebody, what do you want? They say more. That's enough. Just more. <laughs> but the underlying driving force, the, under, the, the subconscious driving force, subliminal driving force, is boredom, isn't it? So boredom is that state of negativity, a state of, of you know, it's, it's not a very nice place to be bored. So as soon as you're bored, you, you're looking for distraction. Yeah, You're looking for something to do to get you out of this boredom. And in so doing, you again try to repeat the same old process of getting pleasure, getting happiness somewhere. See? So <clears throat> these underlying, these post-traumatic stress that you get from indulgence. Yeah? So <laughs> whenever we indulge, it's fine, but it's the aftermath where we realize the pain is actually causing it. Yeah? So there's the compulsive nature, the addiction to it, the frustration when you don't get it, sorrow when you lose it, fear of loss, insurance policies, and boredom. To mention only five, there's probably others. Now, if you take that up from gobstoppers to people, then you can see a lot of suffering, isn't it? Our attachment to people. The sense of uh, pleasure we get in it. The sense of joy and happiness. <clears throat> so, uh, this whole idea of happiness is, um, is, a bit, is a bit strange, isn't it? Now, when the Buddha was asked, uh, used to be accused, rather, of annihilation, because he preferred to talk in the negative. So when he talks about Nibbāna, for instance, this is the real Nibbāna, he prefers not to use the word sukkha, which means happiness. He simply refers to it as adukkha, which means non-suffering. Non-suffering. So he's pointing to something which is beyond our normal experience. Now this uh, acquisitiveness, remember, it's formed. We formed a relationship with the world of hoping that it brings to us certain circumstances, certain um, ways in which we can be happy. Unfortunately, because of the acquisitiveness, we're now in a sense of guarding it because of fear of loss. So the other side of fear is always aggression. So aggression arises naturally. There's a potential of aggression which is commensurate to the amount of acquisitiveness. So if, for instance, um, you are afraid of losing things, being st- of your of your of your house being burgled, you see, then you buy two great big Rottweilers, mm. and you train them to bite people and kill them, <laughs> because you don't want your TV and your super duper computer to stolen. You're prepared to have people's limbs ripped off their bodies to safeguard your particular property. I say this because just up the road, <laughs> if you ever take a walk, you'll come across two rather nasty Alsatians. So you're in immediate sense of guarding, guarding, keeping hold of against others who may want what you have. Yeah? So aggression arises naturally out of acquisitiveness. And if the enemy 
is bigger than you then you've got to collect all your stuff and run for it so there's the fright there's the fear so the two sides of aggression the two sides of aversion is fear and aggression fear and anger fear and hatred mm. now those three those three uh, attitudes are the basic relationship we have to our life to what we to what we experience because of this essential delusion so greed hatred greed fear yeah? acquisitiveness fear hatred anger those are deep dispositions and they're there to maintain our happiness yeah? to maintain our happiness and um, once we begin to see the, the falseness of that, uh, then of course we form, perform, a, uh, we, we begin to generate a different relationship to the world. So now the Buddha was accused because of his, um, of his negative way of expressing things, the unborn, the undying, you know, what Nibbana is, of being an annihilationist, an annihilationist. And he was at pains to say that he wasn't. He said the only things that are annihilated through the process of liberation, process of enlightenment, is this greed, hatred and fear. And the delusion, of course, the underlying delusion. So his whole practice, you might say, is about undermining that relationship, that wrong relationship. That's from the heart's point of view. From a, an intellectual or from a wisdom point of view, it's undermining a wrong understanding, a wrong perception we've conceived something wrongly see now remember that uh, we're moving towards this uh, this liberation we're moving in in our own pace and our way towards this enlightenment this awakening now this awakening can't be manufactured because it doesn't come according to the Buddha from the world it exists before the world began what I mean by what he means by the world beginning is being born every moment into this particular world right? the world as far as we're concerned is the world we experience that doesn't deny other worlds it's just that the only world that we know or can know is the one we're actually experiencing so this is the world right now as far as we're concerned and he says it's in this world that there is the end of suffering right? in this world the world that we're experiencing so it's this business of turning that, um, turning that uh, investigation inward to ourselves to find out where the mistake is being made and to see that this mistake is creating some sort of wrong relationship. Yeah? So when he talks about um, Nibbana, which is the highest happiness, right? Yeah, he talks about it as the highest happiness uh, he goes through these various stages so he says is the highest happiness sensual pleasures is it all to do with the world as we experience it so he doesn't deny there's happiness in it he just denies it's the highest happiness okay? and then he goes through all these ecstasies these inner ecstasies the jhanic the absorption states that we can achieve and each one he asks you know he says this is nibbana but it's not the highest nibbana and then finally he gets to a place of non-contact with the world, you might say. And he says, this is the highest Nibbana. So now this generates a lot of um, argument in uh, Theravada circles and in uh, between, sometimes between uh, Theravada and the other schools. And I think it's up to, uh, you know, there's enough, there's enough evidence in the scriptures that uh, Nibbana is a real experience. It's not. It's not a darkness. It's not a sort of annihilation. The Buddha wasn't walking around 45 years, um, not knowing what he was doing. He wasn't. He wasn't asleep or something. He wasn't in this nibbanic bliss. He was right here and now and communicating and everything else. And he enjoyed life. It's not as though he didn't enjoy life. So uh, when he talks about what is annihilated, it's only this greed, hatred and delusion. It's only this wrong understanding 
and the relationship that comes of it. So, um, there's no way that um, in this life we can escape from unfortunate things. There's no way we can escape from just the basic stuff of, of falling sick and growing old and dying. There's no way we can escape from uh, relationships that go wrong. There's no way we can escape from having to uh, you know, work and all that sort of stuff. So it's not an escape. right? He's not asking us to uh, find an escape from these things. Now you might say, well, what about you monks and nuns? You escape. Sort of nip off somewhere and live in these caves. And just come out and get your grub and then go back. <laughs> well, of course, uh, the, the holy life can be, can be abused, or it uh, can be abused, but basically, of course, uh, a monastery, if it's really working well, a monastic centre or a, a meditation, if it's really working well, is a hospital. It's a spiritual hospital. It's where you come to have a look at your diseases, your spiritual diseases, and, and try, and, try and sort it out. With the, with the intention, at least in, in Buddhist understanding, for the benefit of others. Yeah, that's the Bodhisattva ideal. So, um, recognizing that uh, the pleasures of life and the joys that life gives us uh, are not reliable. Okay? Uh, from the heart's point of view, they're not reliable. From the wisdom point of view, they're impermanent. And it's sort of accepting that. It's accepting that. So when we really accept that, there's nothing in the world that we can rely on for happiness. And there's nothing in the world which is sustainable. Then the attitude has to change, doesn't it? You've got to actually, when happiness arises, there's not that clinging to it. There's not that trying to hold on to it. But just accepting it as something which will arise and pass away. So, if we can develop that sort of attitude to the joys and pleasures of life, then we shouldn't have this aftermath. We shouldn't be feeling sorrow when it goes. We shouldn't be feeling you know, frustration when it's not there, and so on, or fear of loss. All that should begin to lessen as we just accept each moment as it comes to us. This is it. Now it's gone. Now it's gone, huh? This is the way it is. See? If we find a little phrase which sort of captures for us just the way it is, like this is, this is the way it is, yeah? and just drive it home that it passes. Now, at first, you can get a sort of negativity about it. I remember once uh, saying to my teacher, "What a wonderful." Uh, sunset that was and he said ah yes but it passed away and my thoughts inside were what the bloody hell is he that for <laughs> I know it passed away he just tried to <laughs> just tried to destroy my happiness see? <laughs> but it's that it's that quiet self reminder that things pass away that allows us to re-establish a moment to moment you know wise relationship with the pleasures and joys of life so that's the, um, that's the one side of it, you see. The one side of it is to continuously see this relationship of attachment. Remember, you can't, you can't get rid of it. You can't, um, you can't say, well, from now on, I'm not going to be attached to coffee. See? I'm not going to be attached to cigarettes. Something like, you know, if you smoke. You can't just say it. You've got to go through the pain of letting go. And that's, mo that's mainly what stops us from, from, from uh, doing it. So now we've fasted or we've, we've eaten very simply, you see. Yeah. I mean, nobody's dead. Nobody's, <laughs> you know, nobody sort of lost enough weight to be rushed off to hospital, see. And it's sort of um, setting ourselves little tasks where we actually face the attachment we have. Yeah. So now... You can do it gently, like when it when something comes up and you enjoy it to remind yourself now it's gone, and just to feel whatever whatever whatever's arising. So you can't stop it. You can't if you suppress those feelings. If you suppress um, the nostalgia, you want you want more of it. You know, if you if you suppress the the frustration of not having enough, 
then of course that all feeds back into the psyche and, and it just creates more problems. So for instance, after a meal, see, just to sit there for a moment and just catch what, what comes up. See? And it's seeing, seeing what comes up actually relates to how we've related to that meal. So if after your meal, you see, you sit there and you feel gratified, right? Now be careful of that because that gratification it may be to do with feeding the pleasure to a point where it is gratified. Now that gratification feels very close to contentment. That's the problem. Because at that moment you might say, you know, I feel really contented now. See? But that gratification has within itself the seed of furthermore. Right? All, all we've done is satisfied a desire to the point where it's now feeling okay. And then a little bit further down the line, it pops up again. Okay? So, to distinguish between gratification and contentment. So, how are we going to undermine this whole process of attachment, you see? As often as we can, it's the intention with which you enter into, a, into an experience which is going to determine what you develop. So, uh, when we come to a meal, you see, your, what's your intention? So when uh, you, we haven't read it today, but tomorrow we'll read this thing, and it's just there to nourish uh, the body, etc., etc. See, the fact that it tastes nice is to be taken as something extra, and we're not eating it in order to be happy. See, we're eating it in order to maintain health, right, for the nourishment of the body. So that's a very different attitude. Now, when you put the food on your tongue, of course it tastes nice. Well, you know. And with that nice taste, there arises a certain contentment in the heart. Doesn't always have to be. Yeah? I mean, you can you can have a nice taste and feel terrible, right? So it doesn't always have to affect the mind in a very direct way like that. But let's say that for the most part, at least for the purpose of this talk, you you put something pleasant on your tongue, a piece of uh, piece of pizza, and the heart the heart sort of goes, you know, bright. So uh, uh, it's. That's a given, you see. That hasn't to be destroyed. That We haven't got to take that away, you see. That comes up naturally because that's our physical nature. So it's the same with, with friendship. It may be that uh, certain friendships, certain relationships, intimate relationships, relationships of parents to children and all that, you see. Um, there's a, a natural, beautiful joy that arises from, that, from those relationships. But uh, there's always that underlying uh, business of this person is here to make me happy. See? And that's the corruption. So how do you overcome that? It's by, remind, by opening up, by always reminding ourselves to be open, to open up to the other person. See? And it's being open to the other person and f seeing their desire for relationship. And there's that communication. Whereas if you move towards a person with these un, un, uh, often unnoticed desires, then it, it comes out in the way we speak, in the way we act. See? And you can always tell when uh, attachment has slipped into a relationship because if the other person doesn't respond in the way you want them to, then that's when you feel these things. You feel the frustration with them, you feel a bit angry with them, you feel disappointed with them. See, then you might feel afraid that they might, they might not want to be your friend anymore. It's terrible. So all these things, all these negative states, uh, often show us that we, you know, that, that, that there's something underneath the apparent friendship. Okay? To take a very sort of um, regular mistake, I think that people make, and that's to do with with uh, the loss loss of uh, friendship or uh, at a more extreme sense uh, death you see so you lose somebody they die now the grief we feel you see the grief we feel as opposed to a um, sorrow I'll come back to it in a minute uh, the grief we feel is actually a measure of of our attachment okay? the sore the, 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 the sort of pain that it leaves in the heart is the measure of them disappearing. It's that, it's that ripping out of the heart, you see. And they, they're gone, you see. And we're left with memories. They're like ghosts within us, see. Whenever I, for instance, remember, say, my mother, see, 
she's like she's stuck in time I remember with this particular phase this particular time see and every time she comes up there's a certain generation of relate of the relationship I had with her you see if I go back to all these people <laughs> not all the not all died but uh, or some who've left me they're, they're like ghosts within me aren't they you see and I've got this I this continuing relationship which is frozen in time it's not being fed again by the reality of this person see? and that grief is a measure of of, uh, of that of that relationship you see and of course normally speaking if we you know if we do it properly and we recognize that then the grief dies away and what's left is a sense of gratitude for that relationship even if the relationship was terrible, you know, that they, <laughs> it was horrible, uh, there's still uh, an ending of that process of, of, um, of, the, of the pain that's with it, you see, and just an acceptance and maybe some, some learning about what one's personal relationship, well, what one was doing in order for that relationship to be so painful. Because it's never, it's never just the one, is it? We like to think that. I think it's all you. I like to think it's all you. But, is there, but that tends to be very delusive. So, uh, we've got this um, teaching from the Buddha that everything, that our relationship to life is an, is an ethical relationship. And this ethical relationship, if we get it right, will naturally produce all the opposite to that acquisitiveness and the hatred and the aggressiveness and all that and the fear and the opposites will begin to appear. So now, we have always these beautiful states, right? The love, the compassion, right? So again, see, compassion not to be confused with grief. You're not, you're not, compassion isn't feeling sorry for somebody. Compassion is wanting to help. And what naturally arises is, is a beautiful, happy state of mind, because you're helping somebody, you haven't yeah? Sympathetic joy, to be able to really feel happy because somebody else is happy. And these are resonances, human resonances that come to us. We do it easily with nature. So you might wake up on a beautiful morning and, and hear the birds and, and you sort of resonate with their little chirpings. And it's, it's all very lovely and beautiful. <laughs> See? So it's not as though the Buddha is saying that, you know, uh, we have to let go of these things and then there comes this, this sort of arid, desert-like state where there's no suffering. Right, but it's actually dead. <laughs> no, the, the mind and heart actually begin to produce quite naturally these very beautiful states of mind, which through certain exercises you can extend. You can actually develop them uh, within you even more and more. And there's no limit to that. There's no perceivable limit to how much you can develop the quality of love. Right, it's, just, uh, it's just not perceivable. That's why they call the illimitables. So there's no perceivable limit to our compassion or to our sympathetic joy. So, uh, the spiritual life, or the life according to the Buddha, is really this whole business of trying to get this relationship right. And the relationship itself, once you, once you start working on the negativity of the relationship, the positive sides arise naturally. You don't have to work at it. As we begin to lessen our selfishness, generosity arises naturally. As we begin to lessen all the angers and hatreds and petty frustrations and all that, love arises naturally. As we begin to lessen all our little backbitings and cruelties and knife-in-the-back stuff, compassion arises naturally. See? Cruelty to compassion, uh, hatred to love, generosity to... Uh, sorry, um, <laughs> selfishness to generosity. But you can take any of the uh, uh, painful traits in our lives. Loneliness, you see. Well, normally speaking, what's, what's loneliness, you see? It's a feeling of not being, not being loved or not being loved enough. Uh, not being accepted. Uh, being separate. Being isolated. You know, being on your own. Not being able to communicate. I mean, you know, you sit there saying, oh, yeah, I'm, and then you start saying, I'm an horrible person. Which you might be, of course. But you can change. <laughs> so you've got this love. Now, when, when you allow loneliness to express itself and you sit within that loneliness, you see, that's what the Buddha is asking us to do. He says, you can't push these things away. You can't destroy them. You have to attend to them. So 
So all this negativity, whatever it is, you attend to it. Right? That's the attention. So that word attend suggests not just the looking, not just the observing, not just the investigation, but a heart's relationship to it, an attention to it in that kindly way, as a nurse or, or somebody nursing might have towards a patient. Yeah? And what happens is, this is what we experience in our meditation, that these things simply arise into consciousness and begin to evaporate begin to evaporate. So, once we take away a, um, our definitions of these things as, as solid states, as blocks, as emotional states, see that word state, but see it more as just a turbulence, just shades of different turbulences, clouds, you know, cumulus clouds, uh, all those other clouds, I can't remember the names, <laughs> just passing through the mind, like weather systems. And we're just watching it and feeling it and allowing these things to arise and pass away. The system itself, I mean, that's the amazing thing about this, this teaching. The system itself purifies itself. You don't have to do anything. The heart itself purifies itself. As soon as you uh, get in there, uh, there's always a danger that, that you're, you're doing something just slightly off. You, you're developing love in order not to look at the hatred you have. See, and then it becomes like uh, two different mindsets. You've got you've got all this turbulence of hatred, and on the top you're building you you're building you're, you're laying this ice cream of love. See, and it's just it's just a case of recognizing that the the negativity within us has to be released. It has to ex allowed to express itself, and that is done through the prose of vipassana. See, the insight is to see it's not me. That's, that's the deep insight, that as soon as you experience an emotion as an object, as something you are experiencing, this you being the observer, the feeler, immediately you, you've pulled out of it, you're no longer it. The identity is broken. And therefore, in that position, if you look at it carefully, there is no suffering. Even though you might be in a, in a deep depression or a great anxiety or there's, there's stuff coming up. If you can pull out of it to this business, to the, to the position of the observer, see, ask yourself, is the observer, the feeler, the knower, is that actually suffering? And when you turn on the investigation, it becomes something you're investigating as a scientist might investigate pollution. It's just mental pollution. So... There's no suffering in the knower. As soon as the identity forms, as soon as you fall into that relationship of ownership, identity, the arising, suffering arises. So when we chant in the morning, see, this dependent origination, he lays it out very clearly. With that desire, there comes the grasping. The grasping is the identity. And then as soon as that happens, some action is performed either indulging it or pushing it away or doing something. See? And there's your act. These actions produce a certain conditioning. And there you've got your compulsive behavior. See? So now when it comes to... Uh, the, the way the Buddha describes um, his own life, you see. So, at that point of liberation, he's discovered a completely different level of consciousness. Right? Now, this word consciousness is used these days in so many different ways that it's very difficult to, um, to uh, well, to really use it. I, the, best, the best way, the best word I ever came across to try and get this across is the knowing. Even the knowing isn't quite right. It's just knowing. So uh, we have this uh, facility in, in English, isn't it? We call them, uh, you know, these verbal nouns, gerundum, gerundum, or gerund, uh, which it, it, it gives you it gives you a dualistic understanding that it is something, but it's not. But it's a process. It's also it's also something which is nothing because it's always in a process. So this knowing is telling us that. It has this facility, this, this, this ability to understand. Hmm? And that's the Buddha, that's the Buddha within us. Right? And 
Uh, once he'd achieved that, once that became completely separated from the psychophysical organism and he re-entered into it, right, he was living in a completely different world, right? So this completely different world, remember, is not the outer world, it's the world that he's manufacturing. See, and from that point onwards, n suffering doesn't arise. It's not possible for it to arise because the relationship's not there for it to arise. So this suffering is something that is simply coming out of a relationship. That doesn't mean to say he didn't have physical pain. We know he had physical pain. I mean, he said to Ananda to take over the talk because his back was hurting. See? I feel good, my back hurts. Yeah, like the Buddha. <laughs> this is my big connection to the Buddha, bad back. So, so if, you, if, you, if we can understand that, you see, uh, at least intellectually, then we take it into our practice. So right here now, while we're sitting, some uh, some some unpleasant thing arises. See, just by getting that attitude of investigating it, of finding that position other to it, of turning it into an object to be investigated, we're not suffering. And then when it comes to the pleasant part, you see, to do exactly the same. So when pleasant stuff comes up to enjoy it but not to not to indulge it now that's really difficult for us because the distinction between indulging and enjoying is you know it, they're up against each other you know when you don't like something because it pushes it away from you as an object you know when you when aversion arises it's very difficult to know when the indulgence slips in see so that's why when something pleasant comes up in your meditation, you see, just just for a moment, just just reflect, you see, this is beautiful, this is lovely, I'll just be with it, and enjoy its characteristics. That's all. So that means that when it when when the sitting finishes, you don't come back into your next sitting thinking that it's going to rise again, because it never does anyway, unless you're an adept at these these uh, absorptions. So you don't get disappointed, you don't expect it. So when it comes again, oh, very nice. So, if we can take that same uh, understanding into daily life, you see, so something beautiful happens and it disappears. Something beautiful happens and it disappears. So, you don't expect anything. So, expectation is always going to put a pressure on life which is going to undermine the full potential of happiness. So, now there, there we come back to a real sort of deep uh, understanding as to what perception is doing, what concepts are doing. So, remember, uh, you know, just take an example of food. Remember, whenever you see food, unless you've never seen it before, you've got a concept about it. So you've got uh, you're looking at your at, at uh, an apple. Now there is already an expectation of what this apple ought to taste like. It's just there because we've had so much experience with apples. As soon as you say apple, there comes this idea of what a good apple is. So as soon as you taste this apple, it's always in comparison with past apples. So your direct relationship to that apple, as it is, is distorted. Right? You won't actually taste certain things because you don't want to taste them. Or you, or you immediately have a negative attitude towards the apple. Can you imagine that? Then really negative towards an apple. Because <laughs> this is not the apple you expected. It often happens, for instance, with pears. So the pear looks absolutely beautiful, but it's not matured. And you, 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 you sink your teeth into it, and it's got no taste whatsoever. It's got the slightest taste, and you can hear the mind saying, God, God damn it, we should have waited. This is a waste of a pear. <laughs> See, two, three days on, it would be absolutely luscious. So it's, uh, when we understand that the, con the concepts we have, the expectations we have, are always... Uh, messing around with the direct experience of things. So, if we can approach an apple as if we'd never eaten an apple before, that apple would be fine, I mean, unless it's obviously rotten. The apple's fine, it's just, it's just as it is. So, how do we do that, you see? We do that by driving ourselves to the sense base. If we're right there with the tongue, that's what we'll taste, we'll taste the apple. But if we're there at the level of concept, will only allow the tongue to give us the taste that we'll allow it to give us. It's the same when you, uh, you know, uh, culture-wise. 
you know, uh, these days we're much more uh, multicultural. But there was a time when, you know, uh, Chinese music just didn't make sense. It was, it was awful. <laughs> there was a, uh, you'll, still get, you'll still get Italians who won't eat anything else but their own spaghetti. They're not open to things. It's getting better, by the way. <laughs> I know there's some Chinese shops, but I didn't see many curries. But uh, that's by the by. So it's a case of recognizing, just realizing that to, to, to go beyond our concepts, to go beyond our history, which is always impinging on the present, you have to drive your attention to the actual experience that's, that's happening. So it's the same with people, isn't it? You see? When you meet somebody, there's already this expectation of the person. You've built up an, an inner image, an inner concept of the person. See? And therefore, when this person does something which is out of the ordinary, whether it's beautiful or, or, or not, there's a, there can be a tendency you know, to feel that they're not playing your role again. I mean, this happens, uh, you say, most, say, distinctly, say, in a, in a, in a partnership or a, or a marriage where, I mean, this happens, for heaven's sake, where somebody gets involved in meditation. You know, get, and uh, there's a whole war come out because this isn't the person I married. You know, this isn't the person that I, that I formed a relationship with. Because you've defined that person in the way that pleases you from your from the history. So when that person changes too much, you just, you know, it's like that's, the, that's, that's just unacceptable. <laughs> So, um, it's always a case of um, you, uh, understanding that when we're practicing Vipassana, we're actually practicing how to live. There's no distinction to be made between the mindfulness that's in the sitting and the mindfulness in ordinary daily life. It is to be there with what's happening in that very open, spacious way and to be aware of any, any judging that we're putting on a situation. It's not, remember, all these things have always got, um, uh, you know, little underlying accepts, see? I mean, it's not as though you want to stop judging, you want to know it's judging. I mean, if, if you know uh, somebody's as rotten as they come, you don't want to lose that. <laughs> it's just that you don't want it to impinge upon your direct experience of them, because there's always a chance that they might change. But if you're always going to go to them knowing in, in your heart of hearts that they're as rotten as they come, then <laughs> it, it stops any possibility of change between you and that person. Yeah? And if you go to the person with the, always the idea that they are truly a wonderful person and they do something resolvable, I mean, that's the end of the friendship. Because you, you, it's broken your idea of them. Yeah? So... Uh, it's a case of recognizing that um, you know this this whole business of uh, this the, the delusion the delusion of who we actually are and why we're actually here right and to to see how it affects our lives in terms of just that relationship of always holding on to acquiring maintaining and then the opposite of you know pushing anything away either aggressively or running for it, that seems to undermine uh, this little little islands, these little islands of joy and peace that we, that we uh, manufacture, yeah, that we actually uh, try very hard to create for ourselves. So this uh, little handout, if you just have a quick look at it, I've tried to um, try to give some indications for tomorrow. This isn't particularly uh, the rest of the day. This is just for tomorrow. If you want to do some reflection, you see. So you see, so another year, again, make resolutions once more. <laughs> so you've got to, you've got, you know, this uh, achievable, achievable resolution. So uh, these, these are four areas, you know. And uh, any comment on this little pamphlet will be greatly appreciated. So physical well-being. So if you look down there, you see. So eating. I mean, it's basic stuff. Eating, sleeping, exercise, health issues. So what's your relationship to all that? Okay. How, can you, how can you make it even better? You know, what mistakes are we making? Then material well-being. So this is all to do with you know, wages, 
consumer items, cost of living, ease of living, unemployment. What's your relationship to your work? Actually, I'll put that in the next one. Yeah. But it's just, just material well-being. You see, how much, of, how much of our happiness is based on wealth? You know, on being able to take a plane and go on holidays and whenever we feel like. You know, how, much, how much of it is based on that? Or a car, see? A car gives you mobility, doesn't it? You just jump in a car and go somewhere. Remember Spike Milligan? He said they say that money, money can't make you happy. But I just want to, I just want to have a try. Then there's social well-being, which is uh, a huge area. Uh, it's to do with all our relationships and the wider family, friends, workmates. And work itself. What's our relationship to work? Even if the work is not what we want to do, right? even if the work isn't what we want to do, can we form a relationship with it which is at least uh, meaningful, spiritually meaningful? Civic responsibility, see? How, how how seriously do we take that? <clears throat> that means, you know, uh, things like voting and local local issues and stuff like that. It's not that we have to do these things. It's just a case of in what way uh, do they impinge upon our well-being? Would we feel better to get more involved? Would that make us actually feel better in ourselves? Charity work, do we do any? See? And leisure. So leisure here, I'm putting, I'm putting things like art and walking in the country. Anything that doesn't fit into the other categories. And then finally, there's spiritual well-being. So this is, again, ethics. So remember, the Buddha's teaching is all about ethics. Ethics in the widest sense of that meaning of relationship. <coughs> You can boil his, all his teachings in terms of lived, in terms of the life we live, down to ethics. Yeah. Even, even closing a fridge door is an ethical problem. See? Are, we, are we closing it with, a, with complete disregard for the door? <laughs> disregard for the actual machine, you're just banging it to. See? How do we open a door? It goes down to the actual minuscule. And then there's just lifestyle of a spiritual voice. That, that includes everything. Your lifestyle. And then finally your spiritual practice. So in the, um, in the morning when I, when I point at all these people at this present time who are suffering, you know, from sickness and wars and all that. See, the last one is who find life meaningless. That's pretty despairing, isn't it? If your life, if you feel that fundamentally your life has no meaning, that's that's a, a sort of um, it's, a, it's a sort of despair, isn't it? Now, what the Buddha says is that uh, the meaning of this life is to discover this perfect place, this perfect happiness, is what he calls Nibbana. He talks about it as an ayatana, as a sphere of experience. Which is completely separate from the moon, the sun, from going here, there, standing still, from all the senses. It's an actual experience. So he's pointing to that as something which makes sense of everything. So it's not just it's not just a final place in itself. It makes sense of the whole of our lives. It's uh, it's the it's the discovery of our Buddha nature, for want of a better word. Huh? So, we should enter the new year with hope in our hearts. This is the <laughs> with great hope and great uh, effort, you see. And uh, if you want, you can join in then, you see, this little ceremony on New Year's Day. <clears throat> so, it's a case of putting your resolutions on a bit of paper. And we shall take them up and uh, put them in a little container, which I've yet to find. And we shall offer them as a burnt offering to the Buddha. And then uh, we shall take our 
resolutions, uh, sorry, all the things that um, all our, re- yes, that's right, and then we shall transform that into action, into an attitude, you see, by chanting at the statue of Kuan Yin. Should be great fun. <laughs> so I think that's it, I've been on a bit, I think. Oh, I've been on a bit. <laughs> so I can only help. My words have been of some assistance. May you, by your continuous effort, uh, liberate yourselves from all suffering and find true happiness and well-being and, of course, the final joy of Nibbana sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.